Good evening, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to the second lecture in my series on how can we reform business to make sure that it serves society rather than just the privileged few. And if you were unable to make my last lecture, you can still see the video online and take a, a find a copy of the transcript on the Gresham College website. Now, the topic of today is on CEO pay. So if you think about the mission of my lecture series to make sure that business serves society, CEO pay is perhaps the main statistic which suggests that business is out of touch. Why are CEOs paid so much? How can this at all be justified in a world in which the pay of the average worker is stagnant and where they're suffering from zero hours contracts? We're going to explore these concerns today and think about what can we do about this? How can we reform pay? But let me start by giving you an example of what is the controversy about. And even though now in 2018, this is a controversial topic, the controversy about pay is not new. Let's go back eight years. A bit more than eight years, let's go back to April 2010. And this gentleman, Bart Becht, he was the CEO of a company called Reckitt Benkiza. And at that time, he was public enemy number one. What had he done? Had he imposed Victorian working conditions on his workers, like, say, um, people were said happens at Sports Direct? Or had he simply failed and led to a collapse, like uh, Carillion? No, it was neither of those things. It was actually just because he was paid a huge amount of money. He was paid actually £92 million in one year. That was an amount that shattered records for British pay. £92 million in one year, that was £1.7 million a week. Way more than even the best paid footballer gets. And footballers, you can at least see them score goals and, and do some acts of brilliance. But what did Bart Beck do? He managed a company. And this company didn't even do anything complicated. So bankers pay, right? That was something controversial. But the author of this Guardian article said, well, at least in banking, what they're doing is they're dealing with derivatives and collateralized debt obligations. Those things are hard for the ordinary person to get around. But what did Reckitt Penn and Giza do? What did they sell? This is what they sold. They sold Dettol antiseptic. They sold Strepsil sore throat lozenges and Vanish cleaning liquid. That is not rocket science. How can somebody get paid £92 million for doing something that it's, it seems anybody could do? And he didn't even create the company himself, right? It was already in existence before he took over um, about 10 years prior. Unlike, say, Richard Branson, an entrepreneur who created wealth, risked his own money, risked his own human capital, Bart Beck just managed somebody else's business. But actually, this story was not as one-sided as people initially thought. Because one year later, Bart Beck, who was a publicity-shy person, he didn't like uh, any of this publicity that he was given, and partly due to that, he quit one year later. And when he quit, what happened was the market value of Reckitt Benkiza fell by £1.8 billion, many, many times more than the £92 million that he had been paid. Now, you might rightly be sceptical about this. Does this mean that Bart Beck was worth £1.8 billion? Perhaps not. Perhaps because he was paid so much, the market was duped into thinking that he was some kind of wizard, and so the market overreacted to his departure, 
thinking he was the saviour of Reket Benkiza, when in fact he just did the job that anybody else could do. But in fact, the performance of Reket Benkiza afterwards seemed to vindicate the market's reaction. Over the previous five years, what we're looking at long-term performance here, there had been a huge growth in revenues and profits, but after that, it was stagnant and declining. And indeed, in the 10 years up to his big pay package, Reckitt Benkiza had created £22 billion of value, even excluding dividends. It was the fourth best company in the FTSE 100 in the past decade, again a long time period. And the goal of this lecture series is to look at how business serves society, not just shareholders, but it does seem that other measures of society also did better. Let's think about customers. Remember, a business exists to serve society. Reckitt Benkiza, even though it made some bog-standard products like dishwashing liquid and sore throat sweets, it was widely praised for innovation. You can read case studies in Harvard and, and INSEAD about how innovative they were. And let me give you a little bit of an example of the innovation. So it used to be, in a dishwasher, customers had to use three separate ingredients, powder, salt, and a rinse agent. In 2000, they launched Finnish Powerball 2-in-1, that combined a rinse agent and power. In 2001, they had 3-in-1, brilliant, which had salt in as well. And then in 2005, they launched Finnish 4-in-1, which had a glass protector in there as well. Now, this didn't transform anybody's lives, right? It's not like Merck, which I talked about last time, which cured river blindness. But these are small advances which did make everyday household chores, something like cleaning, just a little bit easier. And how did Bart Beck actually do this? Despite being the CEO of his company, he was known as Bart the Skivvy. He would himself clean his own home. He would stop customers in the shops, ask them to take him to his house and their house, and then he would see how they were cleaning their homes. Because his passion was to see, well, how could he help something which seemed a household chore be a little bit less painful. And so this was Bart's approach. It wasn't to make a huge innovation. Right? You can't do that in the same way in Reckitt Benkiza as you can in a pharmaceuticals company. But his approach was similar to baseball. Those of you who know how to, uh, the game of baseball, you make small incremental hits. And what he did through things like this across all of his product mix was just to be a little bit more innovative. And so everyday household products, which cured people of sore throats, made cleaning easier, that's something that contributed to society. What about workers? Well, the headcount grew by 50% over his tenure. And why was it that Bart Becht and Reckitt Keyes were so innovative? It's because he ran a very flat hierarchy. So unlike some other bosses, where there were micromanagers making sure that everything had to pass many approvals, here, despite Reckitt being a big company, it was like working in a small entrepreneurial business. And so the employees not only were well paid, but they had the excitement of launching new ideas. And those who launched new ideas and failed, they were still part of the company. This was a safe place in which you could launch new ideas. And what about the environment? Well, Beckett Benkiza won multiple awards during Bart Beck's time. And uh, why did they win the awards? Well, they were able to increase their stewardship. So the Vanish Eco Pack that reduced its plastic packaging by 70%.
And over 11 years, they planted 5.4 million trees in Canada, reduced their greenhouse gas emissions, and also reduced their energy usage. And an interesting coda to all of this, which was not captured in any of the newspaper articles, which mentioned the 92 million pounds, is what did he do with that money? Did he buy a corporate jet? Did he buy yet another mansion? No. He actually gave 110 million pounds to his own personal foundation, which supported charities like Médecins Sans Frontières. And this actually exceeded the amount that he was paid. He actually paid some of his own money to increase the value of his contribution. And so how does this tie with the whole lecture series that I'm giving? Well, what I introduced, the idea of a responsible business in the last lecture, is this is one that grows the pie, which creates value for society. It is absolutely true that businesses must serve society rather than just serving shareholders and executives. If businesses do not reform, then they will lose their social license to operate as the current wave of populism suggests that they, may all, they, they might already be doing. Now, often people think that the best way for a CEO to serve society is to be paid less. If Bart just didn't get paid so much, there'd be more to go round. But even though £92 million is a massive amount of money, and I'm not going to justify that, I'm going to come back to that later, it, compared to the value of Brackett Benkeys, is actually really tiny. So the amount that could be redistributed is pretty small. Instead, the best way to create value for society is to grow the pie through innovating, through treating customers and employees and the environment well. And yeah, Bart Beck did get wealthy out of this, but also so did society. And so we want to reform pay. We want to make sure that there are the correct incentives to serve society more broadly rather than just to serve shareholders. And that's the approach that I'm going to take over the course of this lecture. But before doing this, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about what is the lens that I'm going to provide. So you will have read a lot about executive pay in the media. There's many other sources that you could have read rather than coming to, to my lecture. So what is the angle that I hope to contribute to this well-known debate? What I'm going to contribute is an academic perspective. That may immediately cause you to fall asleep. You might thought, well, why did I come here? I should have just read newspaper articles. And often when I'm giving these talks, not just on pay, but on anything about business, I'm at a conference where you have practitioners, and after the practitioner perspective, there's me giving the academic perspective. But let me stress that academic is not the opposite of practitioner. It's not that practitioners know what happens in the real world and academics are in the ivory tower. We are after the same questions that practitioners go after, but we have a different approach. Why? Because it's true that I have much less idea as to what goes on in a company than a CEO who works for that company. But what I can do is I can study hundreds and hundreds of companies to see, well, what happens in executive pay more generally. Maybe that last example, where high pay was perhaps justified, is only an outlier. Maybe in most cases, high pay is not justified. And I can't just handpick that one case just because it seems striking. I also want to be rigorous, is I want to try and see, well, if indeed pay is linked to performance, was that performance due to the CEO? She might be only one out of many, many employees. Is it down to other factors? 
And also I aim to be objective is that what I want to do is look at the evidence. I'm not here to support directors, nor am I here to support trade unions. Instead, I want to look at the evidence and make some conclusions as to how best we want to reform pay. Now, there's many caveats to that, right? Even if I look at the evidence, there's a lot of really bad evidence, right? What I mentioned in my last talk is one of the most dangerous phrases, you can say, is research shows that. Research can show whatever you want it to show, right? So there was research showing that vaccination causes autism and that was something which was behind the anti-vaccination movement. And this is something I explored in a recent TED talk called What to Trust in a Post-Truth World, is that for something as emotive as pay, where people might have strong opinions, some people believe pay is absolutely justified, otherwise others might believe pay is completely out of whack, it's very easy to latch onto a study which supports your prior view. My aim here is to present you with the highest quality evidence, regardless of what view it supports or what view it opposes. Now, even though I'm going to try and present with you with the evidence, that does not mean that everything I say will be correct. Right? Many of my opinions you might disagree with. And actually, I hope that over the next half hour, you might find some of the things that I say to be objectionable. Because that's what the purpose is of, of, of coming here. I hope that some of the things that I say might be uncomfortable and might teach you something new on this topic. And it may well be that your opinion is correct, not mine. So by using this fact-based approach, all I'm trying to do is put the facts on the table. Even if we agree on the facts, we may have very different views. Well, if we agree, on the price of different cars, on their fuel efficiency, and also their safety and reliability, we might just buy different cars. We just have different preferences for whether price is more important or fuel efficiency or safety. And it's fine for reasonable people to disagree, even if they agree on the facts. My goal is simply to put the facts on the table unlike, say, there being some hidden charges, which means that sometimes people don't know what the facts are, and then we can agree or disagree as to what's the best approach, and that's absolutely fine, and I'd like you to challenge me at the end. I'll try to allow ample time for questions to challenge me. So while I will present the evidence, this is absolutely not to say that my view of the world is the right one. Even if we agree on the facts, we can have different opinions. But let me try and start with the facts, and let me try to highlight how it's important to make sure that we know the facts. Because just like a doctor performing surgery, anybody who wants to reform pay, you want to diagnose the issue before you treat it. And here's one example where evidence might not be correctly used. So two years ago, I was in the House of Parliament. I was part of, I was called to give evidence in the inquiry on executive pay. And the witness before me quoted a study which found that the higher the gap between CEO pay and worker pay, the worse the performance. Which might make sense, right? When there's high pay inequality, maybe that suggests just unfairness, mistreatment of workers, the workers get demotivated, and performance is worse. However, what they quoted was a half-finished version of an article. Now, that article had actually been finished and peer-reviewed and published, and it found the opposite result. 
right? So it found here that we do not find a negative relationship. Actually, we find that firm value and performance increase with relative pay. Now, notice that's not to say that we can just ignore the pay ratio. It might be, even if we know that the higher the pay ratio, the better the firm performance, we might still say we don't tolerate high pay ratios because we believe that inequality is more important than performance. And that's a very valid and legitimate view to hold. But where the evidence is useful is the evidence shows us what are the trade-offs in order for us to try to make these decisions. It's to make an informed decision. It's not to say that only one decision is right. Now, around the same time, the Financial Times, a publication I really respect, they had a headline, UK chief executives earn much more than European peers. And perhaps an even more troubling finding, there was no link between pay and performance. We might not begrudge a CEO who earns a lot because she's performed well, but this suggests that her pay is completely unrelated to performance. Very striking finding, but the problem was the study did not even exist. Right? It wasn't even out yet. There had been a press release about the paper, but you couldn't actually scrutinise the paper. they just taken the author's word one final thing, which, which might also be a concern, was this was from a government, the government's green papers. So after Theresa May became prime minister, she said she wanted to make sure that the society works for all. And to her credit, what she did is she launched this green paper on corporate governance. How can we reform the business system to make sure it serves the whole of society? And what a green paper consultation does is the following. It presents various policy options. And then it invites a consultation so that anybody, not just businesses, ordinary citizens, can respond and say what policy options they prefer. And that's good. That in involves a democratic process to some degree. And one of their main charts arguing that pay was out of whack was this one. So this was their figure one. And what they show here is they show in these bars how much pay has increased. Don't worry so much about just the different colours. Just look at the total size of the bars and you can see that they've just gone up and up and up and up over time. What does the red line show? Well, the red line shows is the value of companies over that time period. And we can see this massive disconnect. Right? Pay has just gone up almost without ceasing every single year. Yet the value of companies has been flat. Mediocre performance or non-performance, yet pay has risen. Now, they quoted the source, which was the Manifest Pay and Performance Survey. And then I decided to look at that survey myself. And when I did so, I found that that was not actually the chart in the survey. The chart in the survey was this one, where importantly, there was another line. And that other line, that dotted line, was the return of companies, including dividends. And it's a very basic aspect of finance that you need to include dividends when calculating the performance of a company. And this was just excluded. In fact, what they needed to do was to recreate the chart and make the decision to exclude this line. And so this, I think, is concerning because it doesn't paint the full picture. Now, even though this red line goes up and up and up, we can still say, well, this didn't go up enough to justify the massive increase in pay. 
And that, again, would be a legitimate position. Maybe high pay is not justified. But again, we want to put the correct facts on the table and then make the assessment rather than removing something that could be relevant. So what I'm going to do in the next part of my talk is to talk about the concerns that people have. And many of the concerns are legitimate. And then we're going to think about, well, how do we best try to address them? But also what I will try and argue is that some concerns may actually be shooting at the wrong target, is that they may be looking at aspects of pay which might not be so important. So the bottom line of what I'm, where I'm going to take you over the next, the, the next half an hour or so is I absolutely believe that pay needs to be reformed. It is not in the interest of society. Yet the dimensions along which I believe that reform should occur are quite different to what people typically focus on. Now, here's the first concern, which is perhaps the big smoking gun, is that high CEO pay is just unfair. Just looking at those sheer numbers, you don't need any academic evidence to show that this is just out of whack. In the US, the average CEO earned $14 million in 2017. That is 361 times the average worker. In one day, a CEO earns what an average worker earns in the entire year. How can that be fair? And that's not any better in the UK. It's that the ratio is about 150. So the, um, January the 4th is often celebrated or commiserated as Fat Cat Wednesday or Fat Cat Thursday, depending on what day of the week it is. That's the day by which a boss has earned what a citizen has earned in the entire year. And you might think, well... CEOs are paid a lot because they're talented. But this pay ratio has gone up so much over time. That pay ratio of 361 now was only 46 in 1983. So if pay is really justified by talent, then that can't explain why the ratio has gone up. You can't claim that CEOs now are suddenly smarter than they were in 1983. <laughs> so why is pay so much higher? And this is what politicians now are concerned about. So it used to be in the past, you would want to run for election, claiming how you're going to change healthcare or education. Now, they try to campaign on the basis of CEO pay because it's such a major issue for inequality. In the US election, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump agreed about virtually nothing. But the one thing they did agree about was that CEO pay is, CEOs are paid too much. Hillary Clinton says there's something wrong when the average American CEO makes 300 times the typical American worker. Donald Trump used a bit blunter language, unsurprisingly. He said, high CEO pay is a total and complete joke and it's disgraceful. But despite them using quite different words, they agree that pay is really high. And that is seen to be unfair. But let me take a slightly different perspective on this. I completely agree that pay should be fair. But my definition of fairness will be somewhat different. It's not necessarily pay which is equal, but it's pay that's justified by performance and contribution to wider society, not just to shareholders. And let me give you an example of that difference. So if I was to give all of my students at London Business School the same grade, that would be equal, but that would not be fair because some students would have performed better or worse 
in the exam and in the case study assignments. So what would a fair grade be? That would be a grade which is fair given the level of performance that they've undertaken. And so we translate this into a, a pay setting. Well, well, how do we determine whether a CEO's pay is fair? Well, that is it linked to her performance. And there's many cases in which pay is unfair. Why? Because it might be that it's not linked to performance, or maybe it's linked to the wrong measures of performance. So maybe you're looking at short-term measures of performance, or maybe these are measures of performance which only take profit into account and not your contribution to the wider society. Or maybe it is that the performance has nothing to do with the chief executive. So some of you will know the case of Persimmon, the home builder, where they got massive bonuses. But the massive bonuses was because the housing market just happened to do well because of a low interest rate environment and the government's health helped to buy schemes. So it is absolutely the case that in reality, pay is unfair in many, many cases which is why I believe that it should be reformed. But notice that my criterion to determine pay is not so much the CEO's pay relative to the average worker, but the CEO's pay relative to how she's performed, how much value she's delivered over the long term for all of society, and which isn't just due to luck, something like interest rates being low. I think that this is important in terms of the, just the terminology. We often refer to pay as executive compensation. That is really bad terminology. You get compensation for an injury, right? So uh, you're, because you've, you've been hurt, you get compensation. That language suggests, well, a CEO is so lazy, the only way that she will work is if she's going to be compensated for the inconvenience of having to show up to the office. If indeed high pay is compensation, you've got the wrong CEO. What you should want a CEO is intrinsically motivated to work rather than viewing pay as compensation. And if indeed we think about compensation, a CEO's job is not more unpleasant than, say, a shift worker's job or a nurse's job who's working long hours and so on. They are flying around in their corporate jets. So if we think about compensation, there is no way that we can justify high pay. But if instead say that pay is not compensation for effort, but it's reward for value creation, then this highlights the fact that what should pay be linked to is it should be linked to how much value that you have created for all of society. I think the reward um, terminology is important. So reward is getting um, rewarded for something that you might have done anyway. You might get rewards, for example, for finding a lost child or a lost parent. Here, it may well be, and hopefully it is, that the CEO is motivated to perform, not to get paid, but to create value for society. And then it's not unfair, at the end, as a byproduct, to reward her after the fact, if she's done a good job, as long as you also punish her or hold her accountable after the fact, if she's failed. So the bottom line of all of those slides is that what matters is not pay compared to maybe the average, but compared to how much value you've created. And then with this, we can reassess why might it be that pay has gone up so much. And what I want to share with you is one of the most impactful academic papers which has been written this millennium. 
So the argument is as follows. People have argued, how can pay have gone up so much when, pay, when CEOs now are not much more talented than in 1983? But the argument that was made was that CEOs aren't more talented now, but talent is now more important. What do I mean by this? Let's look at another area in which there's high pay. Let's look at football. Let's compare the pay of uh, Pele to Harry Kane. So Harry Kane is a great footballer, plays for Tottenham Hotspur and England. But it'd be difficult to argue that Harry Kane is more talented than Pele was. But yet, even adjusting for inflation, Harry Kane gets paid way more than Pele did back in the day. And why is this? Well, what's changed is now that the football industry is a global marketplace. If Harry Kane scores just one or two more goals a season, that could be enough to propel Tottenham Hotspur into the Champions League, perhaps see them perhaps even win the Premier League. And nowadays, you can see Tottenham Hotspur games from all across the world, and you can buy replica merchandise. So because it's such big business, even a small difference in ability can command high wages. And we can look at that not just in football, look at the, say, golf. So in golf, the Masters is the biggest tournament. In the 1980s, sorry, in 1948, how much was the prize for winning the Masters? It was $2,500. Now, in 2009 figures, adjusted for inflation, that was $22,000. How much? Did the Masters winner actually get paid in 2009? 1.35 million. So that was 60 times higher. And again, what's changed is that this is again a global industry. People are tuning in from all over the world to see the Masters. And what's really interesting is even though the prize winner, the, 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 the number one winner, that pay went up a lot, if you look at the third or fourth or fifth place, that didn't really change that much. So here, even in golf, there's like massive inequality and that's gone up. Why is it? It's because people from Japan who are tuning in, they're tuning in to see the Tiger Woods, but not sort of the number three or four or five player. So what we see in CEO pay is something which is not unique to CEOs, but a part of a general phenomenon, that anything which is scalable does get rewarded more highly in a global marketplace. So it's not just in terms of athletes, but let's look at J.K. Rowling versus Jane Austen. J.K. Rowling, again, is not clearly more talented, but because now you can sell your books worldwide and you can also go into, uh, to turn them into films, that has gone up. Anything scalable, pay not just of CEOs, but lawyers or bankers or private firms, all of their pay has risen. So if we indeed want to address inequality, which I believe we absolutely should, we need to address inequality stemming from high pay across all of those professions, not just CEOs. However, what am I assuming here? I'm assuming that the CEO actually does add value to begin with. And like, we know that, okay, Reckitt and Keezer did well, but how do we know that's Bart Becht? There could be loads of other employees. Look at Apple, Tim Cook, but Apple was a great company before he took over. So some other papers try to see, well, what happens when you get rid of the CEO and then nothing else changes? And so unfortunately, this is a, a rather morbid study, 
looking at what happens when a CEO dies. Now, why is that interesting? It's because they're only the CEO changes, none of the other workers change. So you strip out the effect of the CEO from everybody else. And what this paper showed was that on average, a CEO death fell, reduced the stock price by 2%. Now, if a younger, shorter tenure CEO was, um, died, the stock price fell by 4%. It was an older CEO, the stock price actually went up by about 4%. Now, the message here is not to say older CEOs are worse than younger CEOs. Instead, it's to show that the CEO matters. Even though she's only one person, that departure can have a huge effect on firm value. The difference between a, a bad one, mi minus 4, and a good one, plus 4, 8%, that's a huge effect on value. Oh, you might still be sceptical. But you might think, well, maybe this death wasn't a random event. Maybe the CEO, because the company was doing so badly, had a heart attack and then died. And so when you see a death and then worse performance, it's not because the CEO was central to the firm. It's because the performance was going to be so bad and that's what caused the CEO to have a heart attack or stress. So what another paper did is it got even more morbid. So unfortunately, what they looked at was the cases in which a CEO's relative died. So the CEO's parents or siblings, or sadly on some cases, their children died, then the CEO would be bereaved and would be perhaps off work. Now you might think, well, that shouldn't matter. The CEO is only one person out of a very large company. There's other people in the management team who can come and step in. But what was found here was that the death of a relative tended to reduce performance. Not in every case. They found that when the CEO's mother-in-law died, performance actually went up. <laughs> but aside from that, all of these deaths did worsen performance. And that does suggest that actually CEOs do matter. So what's the second concern that people have? It's that CEOs are not punished enough for poor performance. And this is one paper study which is really famous and a smoking gun and a real concern if it was true. What this looks at here, on the bottom, this is the 10-year performance of the company. Over 10 years of long-term performance. And what we see on the y-axis is how much the CEO is paid over that period. As you can see, some of these numbers are massive, $140 million. And this red line is the relationship. And that red line is disturbing that shows there is no relationship between pay and performance. And so this entire system is not working. However, this study and many others like it actually fails to measure the relationship between pay and performance correctly. What it does is it looks at how much your pay changes every year with performance. So for Steve Jobs of Apple, there was no sensitivity. Steve Jobs famously had $1 of salary every year, irrespective of performance. But does that mean that he was not accountable? No. Where did the accountability come from? He had invested the vast majority of his wealth owning Apple shares. So if Apple had underperformed, his wealth would have been wiped out. So if you indeed need to take into account, you want to calculate how much on the hook the CEO is for poor performance, 
you need to look at the entire wealth that she has invested in her company, and these amounts are substantial. So a 10% fall in the stock price is equivalent to a pre-tax pay cut of $10 million in the US and £1.5 million in the UK. So actually, in many years, your pay, net pay could be negative because you've underperformed. So this shows that CEOs are indeed paid for performance. But you might think, does this, is this a good thing? Should you be given incentives to begin with? As I mentioned earlier, shouldn't you work hard because you want to do a good job rather than because you're paid? Indeed, John Cryan, the CEO of Deutsche Bank, famously said, I have no idea why I was offered a contract with a bonus because I promise you I will not work any harder or any less hard in any day just because somebody is going to pay me more or less. And indeed, there's a lot of evidence in many other areas that incentives backfire. For teachers, people have looked at trying to pay teachers according to test scores. What happens? They teach to the test. They focus on teaching only the syllabus, not a love of learning, a respect for authority, uh, the ability to be disciplined. What about doctors? You could pay them potentially for things such as the surgeries they perform, but then they will just do surgeries unnecessary. Now the problem here is that for a teacher and for a doctor, you don't have a comprehensive measure of performance. So whatever you pay them for, they'll focus on just that thing and nothing else. But for CEOs, you do have a comprehensive measure of performance. And that is the long-term, stress, long-term stock price. Now, people argue, well, the stock price, doesn't that just measure the value that you give to shareholders? Well, no, in my last Gresham talk, I gave evidence showing that many things that you do to help society actually show up in the stock price. If you treat your workers well, that improves the stock price in the long run. If you treat your customers well, if you preserve and conserve the environment, all of those things eventually do show up in the long-term stock price. So actually, by giving CEOs shares and making sure that they're invested in their own firm, they act like owners, not like salaried bureaucrats, they are accountable for their future failures. This is a better way of reforming pay because it means that they have not only accountability, but also the long-term interests of the company in mind. And we can indeed look at evidence. Does this work? What this study looked at, was, well, let's just take simple comparison. Let's look at companies where CEOs are paid like owners. They own a lot in their company. They have skin in the game. And let's look at companies where the CEO is paid like a bureaucrat. They're paid a flat salary irrespective of performance. You might think, well, maybe the latter is, is sufficient. Maybe there's enough intrinsic motivation. But what was found was that the companies where the CEOs were paid like owners, they did better by four to 10 percentage points per year. Big difference for society. So in my final 10 minutes, and I want to make sure I allow 10 minutes for questions, what is the way in which pay should be reformed? So what my last section would have shown is that maybe some of the common concerns of pay 
are, might not be as, as, as severe as are often thought. But I absolutely do not want to give the impression that everything is fine and we don't want to change anything. We do need to reform, but I would say that we don't want to reform so much the level of pay. Remember, the level of pay is very small compared to the rest of firm value. Five million, which is what a CEO gets paid in the UK, that is 0.06% of the average size of a company. Whereas changing the design of pay actually has effects of 4 to 10%. So let's change the design to make sure that the CEO is only paid for long-term performance and also for performance which takes not just shareholders, but also society into account. What I just said in the last slide was that it's fine to pay according to the share price because the share price does take into account your contribution to society. But that's something which only is true in the long run. In the short run, it is indeed possible to increase the stock price by really damaging society. You could not train your workers, you could pay them less, you could subject them to really bad working conditions, and you can pollute the environment. Yes, in the long run, the workers will leave, you're going to get an environmental fine, and the stock price will go down. But if you're paid according to the short-term stock price, let's indeed squeeze everybody else. And there are sadly examples of that. So Angelo Mozillo, the CEO of Countrywide, a bank in the US that was responsible for the financial crisis, he wrote a lot of subprime loans. That's something which generated a lot of revenue, led to the stock price going up. He then sold $129 million of his shares in the 12 months before the start of the financial crisis. So when the financial crisis hit and ordinary people were losing their savings, Angelo Mazzillo was getting off scot-free. So what this points to is the more relevant dimension of pay to reform is not so much the level, is not so much to cut pay from 4 million to 3 million, but change the horizon of pay. Maybe give you shares that you can't sell for seven years, whereas at the moment you only have to hold your shares for three years. And indeed, there's evidence that this matters. So in one of my own papers, I show that when a CEO is about to sell their shares, they cut investment and they focus on just meeting short-term earnings targets. When CEOs have short horizons, they focus on the short term. And another paper here looks at, well, what happens when you give the CEO long-term horizons by giving them shares with maybe a seven-year period before they can sell, sell them? Well, what they find is that profitability falls in the short term, but it rises in the long term. So the idea is here is that they're investing for the future and willing to take a short-term hit. Well, that's a measure of how investors do. What, how about how society does? What they find is that these companies are more innovative. They generate more patents and higher quality patents. Again, when you're thinking about the long term, you need to think, well, how can I invest for the future? Let's look at Ford, for example. Ford has had record profits over the past couple of years, yet investors have realised that this is no good. The stock price has actually fallen. Why? Because people realise they're not investing enough in self-driving cars or electric cars. What about the society more generally? What was found is that when you put long-term incentives in, 
these companies treat the environment better, customers better, society better, and most importantly, workers better. Which again suggests that if we want to treat workers better, which we absolutely must do, right, the better way to do this isn't necessarily to cut the CEO's pay and redistribute this around, because again, that amount is small, but to give the CEO accountability for long-term performance, because the only way that a company can be successful in the long term is if it treats its workers well, not just by paying them well, that's important, but giving them flexi-time working policy, maternity leave, paternity leave, on-the-job training, and all of those other important dimensions. And indeed, this is happening. So what the UK Corporate Governance Code is doing is it's increasing the minimum period from three years to five years for which a CEO must hold her shares. But maybe even five years isn't enough. Maybe in some cases it should be seven. Exxon in the US, that's 10 years. And also, it's important to make sure that you hold your shares even after you've left. You don't want situations in which a CEO leaves and then she can cash out. You want her to keep investing in a company even after she's quit. Why? This makes sure that she will undertake investments where the payoff is even after her horizon is over. And it also makes sure that she invests in succession planning. Some of the very best CEOs were actually not as good as people might think because they didn't plan for succession. Last lecture, I talked about Roy, Roy Vagelos of Merck, a superb CEO, but his reputation was a little bit tainted by the fact that Merck didn't do so well after he left because he hadn't planned for succession. If I know that my wealth is going to be tied up in my company even after I've left, I need to make sure that I've built the foundations for continued performance. And some of you will know the book Good to Great by Jim Collins, where a good leader is one where the company performs well under your control. A great leader is one where you are not missed. Why? Because you've done so much to invest in the company to build the foundations that if you go away, the company is still going to flourish. Here's another issue that needs to be reformed, which is the inequality of pay. The public is really angry about the level of pay which, is, which has gone up. But let me remind you that what we see is not something which is unique to CEOs. It is something that we see across all of society. There is high pay in anything which is scalable because the, we live in a global marketplace, the stakes are higher. So even if you're only a little bit more talented than the next best person, when you think about how large firms are and how large an effect you can have, that can command high wages. And so I think the solution here, and let me make sure that I leave enough time for questions which I'm skipping some things, perhaps the best way to address this is a higher income tax, maybe for all incomes above, let's say, £1 million. What that would do was that would address high pay from all sources. High pay from public company CEOs, private company CEOs, lawyers, private equity, hedge fund, investment banking, sports, music, acting, reality TV stars, trust fund babies, all of these are very highly paid individuals and all of these people contribute to inequality and therefore we have a solution which addresses inequality from all of those sources that would have a better impact on society. 
I know that CEOs are in the public eye, and so people like to lambast the 100 CEOs in the FTSE 100. But why should we focus on a CEO's pay and not a lawyer's pay or a hedge fund manager's pay? Something more systematic, like a tax, would address this very important societal issue. And finally, let me go to just end with uh, one last thing, which is the complexity of pay. Now, in 2015, BP made the biggest loss of its history, lost $6.5 billion. Yet the CEO, Bob Dudley, his pay was increased from $16 million to $19 million. Why? This was the reason. <laughs> what? Well, I don't know what this says, right? This was apparently the reason, but it's so complicated that we, we, nobody has any idea as to why this led to him, his pay going up. But what was this? This was the formula that led, justified Bob Dudley's pay. They devised such a complex formula that it was almost always possible to justify high pay because what we have here is loads of different types of, of, of um, valuation and performance metrics that even though he'd done really badly on so many dimensions, you could justify pay by appealing to some of those other things. And so what we will need to do is just simplify pay by giving them what I mentioned earlier, just to give them share. Rather than giving this very complex formula, which looks at maybe your solvency, your profitability, your revenues, and all of those performance targets, and spits out a formula, just to give the CEO shares that she holds for the long term, that is simple, that's transparent, and aligns her to the long term. And the most interesting thing about this, and I'm going to end with this, is you can give them to all employees as well. Why is that important? If a company does well, it's not just the CEO. It is probably the rest of the workforce. And we need to make sure that the rest of the workforce shares in any success that the company has. Now, if the CEO was given a really, really complicated formula which determined her bonus, you wouldn't want to also give that complicated formula to ordinary employees. It would just be too difficult to understand and they wouldn't know on what basis they're paid. But if you give the CEO lots of shares, you can also give shares to ordinary workers. Those are simple, easy things to know what, what they're going to depend on and to make sure that if companies continue to be successful, perhaps due to changes in technology, these are things which it's not just the elites which benefit, but everybody else as well. So the bottom line of what I'm saying in, in, in terms of this lecture, what I want you to take away from this, is that pay should absolutely be re reformed, but the reform should be based on the pie-growing idea which is the unifying theme of all of my lectures. The way to create more value for society is not to split the pie differently, to pay CEOs less so that everybody else can get more, but instead to make sure that the pie grows by giving the CEOs the incentive to innovate, to make sure that they invest in stakeholders, to make sure that they don't take short-term decisions. And when you do innovate, then the company becomes more valuable and the CEO becomes better off but we need to make sure that the workers also become better off by giving them shares in the firm. That's all that I have um, to, to say. I, I, I said I wanted to make, make sure that I have time for questions, so please do ask questions on anything that I've said, and even if there's things that I haven't covered, but which sort of um, you, you have views on on pay, I'd be very happy to ha have them, and in particular challenges to things that I say you absolutely don't need to agree with me.
Oh, thank you.